to When God Was Queer with your host, Dakota St. Clair. Hey everyone, and welcome back to When God Was Queer for episode 6, Saints and Haints. In this episode, we'll be doing a deep dive into the wide world of ascetics and anchorites, hermits and holy fools, monks and martyrs, and the many among their ranks who seem to live and love just like us. I want to say thank you again to everyone who has subscribed, and I wanted to let you all know that Anchor has a fabulous feature where you can leave me a voice message. Tell me what you think of the show so far, and share any feedback that you have. So if you want to do that, just go to anchor.fm slash whengodwasqueer and click message. Before we get started with our saints today, I want to get a few honorable mentions out of the way. Uh, St. Joan of Arc, obvious contender for this episode, is actually covered during our... Uh, episode 4, Mulan and His Comrades. And if you just like Google gay saints, first thing that comes up is usually Saints Sergius and Bacchus. However, we're going to be covering them and their incredible relationship uh, in an upcoming episode called Warrior Lovers. Other than that, I'm often asked when people see my altars or hear me reference the saints, how in the world a witch could ever work with Catholic iconology? And I always, always, always explain it by starting by stating what is as obvious as it is overlooked and easily forgotten. The Roman Catholic Church was Roman before it was Catholic. Not only are so many of the really big name saints absolutely repackaged derivatives of former gods, but the entire working theory behind so much of the church is derived from the ancient Roman religion. There's literally a saint for everything, each with their own purview, personality, preferred offerings, uh, specific annual feast day. It's fucking polytheism. There's no guesswork to anything. You fucked up and broke the rules? Absolution is guaranteed. Go to confession, perform the exact formula of prayers that you're given, and your account is cleared. So who are these many figures that I'm talking about? Let's jump right in with today's first story, and that is Julian of Norwich. Now, the very first thing you need to know about Julian of Norwich is that there are two types of depictions you'll find if you Google her. The bent neck lady and sassy lady with sassy cat. But that's not how she scored a great spot on this list. For starters, as far as anyone can tell, she's the very first woman to write a book in English, which has survived to the present day. You see, when Julian was in her early 30s, she became so seriously ill that she believed she was on her deathbed, and it was during this time that she experienced a succession of 16 visions of the Passion of the Christ. She went on to recover fully and documented her experiences in Revelations of Divine Love. Julian of Norwich lived from 1343 to circa 1416 and was an English anchorite. Well, what's an anchorite? It's one of the earliest forms of monastic life, and it's kind of similar to a hermit, but instead of leaving civilization altogether to go like live in the woods alone forever, you leave the secular world and you live in a cell, which was usually built um, adjoining the local church. So... What was interesting, too, about the Anchorites is it was a little bit more organized than hermits. Hermits just kind of, like, left. With the Anchorites, they actually had to undergo a rite of consecration, which was akin to a funeral, as they would, once in place, be dead to the world and be considered a sort of living saint. Their life would be, from that point on, intensely ascetic and being entirely prayer and Eucharist-focused. 
As an anchorite, Julian of Norwich preferred to write anonymously and remain isolated from the world. However, she did have strong relationships with a number of sisters in the Benedictine and Brigitine orders who diligently guarded her writings until they could finally be published after the Protestant Reformation and its aftershocks in 1670, more than 200 years after her death. She's still considered today to be a deeply influential Christian mystic and theologian, and the Catechism itself quotes from her work, even though she was never formally beatified or canonized. However, she is still called Saint, Holy, Blessed, and or Mother Julian, and has an official feast day each year on May 13th, which just passed. So why is she on this list? Well, first of all, her story is today as relevant in this moment as ever before since she was basically full-time social distancing. She became an anchorite on the heels of the Black Plague and its many resurgences, and it's not only the becoming an anchorite that gave her a shot at living through the chaos, but it also gave her refuge from it. Second, her writings and her visions? Um, not exactly the most on-brand stuff for the church. She referred to the Holy Spirit as she, her, and repeatedly invoked Mother God and Mother Father God, and had ecstatic visions of breastfeeding at the chest of Christ. She lived during a tumultuous time of plague, uprisings, and panic, which makes her characterizations of God as omnibenevolent and full of love, compassion, and joy all the more striking. And she consistently likened these traits to the love of a mother, specifically making the point that God is our father and our mother. In her 14th vision, she paints the Tridentine Godhead as a domestic order with Jesus as wise, merciful, and loving mother, saying that the relationship between a mother and child is the only relationship which we may have with Christ. Speaking of this relationship in terms of how he would conceive, carry, give birth, breastfeed, wean, and raise us up. Julian of Norwich wasn't totally alone in that cell. Given how wise, well-spoken, and compassionate she was, plenty of people came to see her seeking counsel. But these weren't really social calls, though, because they essentially talked to her through, like, a tiny slot in the wall, which was just basically, like, a brick that had been left out. However, she did have somebody with her in the cell. A cat. Cats were the only companion allowed for anchorites since they were ratters, and this was especially important during the Black Plague. And of course, this led to uh, many calling her the special patroness of cats. During one of her most vivid experiences, she said that Jesus came and spoke to her, making this pronouncement, which would later become known colloquially as Julian's Prayer. And it's something that I think all of us need to hear in times like this. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Moving on from Julian, we meet our next saint, Wiljefortis. One of my all-time favorite stories, and one of the stories which led to the birth of this podcast, is that of St. Wiljefortis, who is also sometimes called St. Liberata or St. Uncumber. Her tale comes to us from the early Middle Ages, in which she was a well-known and beloved princess of Portugal, blessed with beauty and brains to boot. Everything was going just fine, and Wiljefortis had decided at some point to become a Christian, but because those big, mean, nasty pagans uh, were all out trying to kill the Christians, she had to do so in secret. This probably wouldn't have amounted to much, but her pagan father had just settled the negotiations over her dowry with the king of Sicily. 
Well, that just couldn't happen. You see, Wilja Fortis had, like so many others in her situation, uh, had a secret conversion to Christianity during which she dedicated her virginity to Christ and had taken a vow of chastity, wishing to live a religious life. So our girl starts praying. Every single night she prays over and over and over again, earnestly and fervently, God, please call off the wedding. Please stop this from happening. But each day is one day closer to the wedding, and she's seeing no relief in sight. But still, faithfully, every night she prays and she prays, God, please call off the wedding. Please stop it from happening. Finally, it's the night before the wedding, and Wilcher Fortis kneels down in prayer. She beseeches Christ, saying, Please, Lord, if you won't cancel the wedding, just make me so ugly that the king of Sicily will take one look at me and run away in terror. Bingo. She wakes up the next morning, and she has the long beard of a hermit, reaching all the way down to her waist. As soon as her handmaidens arrive to prepare her for the wedding, all hell breaks loose. They're screaming, somebody falls over, one lady's hair turns white, they're running around like chickens with their heads chopped off, until someone is coherent enough to rush to the king's side and tell him what has happened. The king of Portugal drops everything and rushes to see his daughter, and almost falls dead at the sight of her. He calls out for the royal barber. The barber comes to his aid, but his blades are no match for the beard. It's soft and flaxen to the touch, yet when he tries to cut or shave it, it's as if it were stone. Finally, his best blades were broken on her long beard. However, apparently, while all of this is going on, the king is not... Mm, quite the long-term planner, I guess? Basically, he picks up, like, a very beautiful, rich, long piece of fabric and just throws it over her head so it looks like a floor-length veil. I'm not sure how this was actually supposed to help, but the wedding commences and everyone is stunned when the bride appears in her floor-length veil. How royal, how pomp and circumstance of her, how chic! The wedding goes off without a hitch until they are to consummate the ritual with kissing. The king of Sicily lifts her veil and screams like a little bitch in brutal shock horror. He runs for his life and the wedding is off. So what does her very disappointed father do? Well, the only logical thing, of course, he has her crucified, which means there are multiple depictions from the Middle Ages of her martyrdom, which basically look like Jesus Christ wearing a girdle and a dress on the cross. Oh, and one of her shoes is always hanging off and there's usually a dog barking up at her but that's never explained. Anyway, she's in charge of a lot of stuff, but her main theme is liberation. It's said she can be called upon for liberation from all forms of oppression, pain, difficult childbirth, pr uh, prison, abusive relationships, men, etc. And her feast day is celebrated each year on July 20th. Next up at bat, we have St. Sebastian, a true heavy hitter. St. Sebastian is a true blue, dyed in the bull gay icon. He is one of the most easily recognizable saints of all time. He's a total babe who's naked or nearly naked, bound to a tree and pierced with multiple arrows. Traditionally, he's the patron saint of archers, athletes, and soldiers, as well as a special protector against the plague. However, since the Renaissance, he has at least unofficially been the patron saint of homoeroticism in its many forms. It's said that Sebastian was an Adonis-esque beauty who had captured the heart of the Roman emperor Diocletian. Pause. If you don't already know it, we're on dangerous ground. Diocletian was the emperor who was like, wait a minute, where the fuck did all these Christians come from? Oh, they're trying to replace our gods? Kill all of them immediately, please and thank you. We'll have an audience and bring lions in. 
You might think I'm joking, but no, literally hundreds of Christians were martyred during the Diocletian persecution. So, if Diocletian was so in love with Sebastian, what possibly could have gone wrong? Well, one day, Sebastian decided to defend a pair of Christians from the Roman soldiers who were tormenting them. Diocletian may have loved Sebastian, but not as much as he hated these people, so he gave him one chance to rectify the situation and commanded him to kill the pair. Sebastian refused. The pair were immediately slaughtered, and Diocletian ordered Sebastian's own archers to slay him. He actually survived the low-tech firing squad, but was beaten to death shortly after. He was so long celebrated as a patron of gay lovers by so many artists and creators in their works, in art, and in culture, that it's no surprise that he took on a whole new role in the 20th century, when in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a mass following which developed of gay men praying to St. Sebastian for relief and protection from the AIDS epidemic. This, of course, was seen as an extension of his role as protector from the plague. Now let's jaunt over to Ireland, where we meet St. Abbott. An Irish Catholic saint from the 5th century CE who was said to be an expert diviner, healer, and miracle worker, he counseled an older couple who had long prayed for a child. In a familiar refrain, they were finally blessed with a child, yet they were aggrieved to see that their child was assigned female at birth. It's important to understand just how vital a male heir is to a father in a patriarchal socio-religious context. So they weren't just praying for a child, that's the thing. They were praying for a vessel through which their name and legacy could be carried on. Patriarchy reinforces itself through its ability to promise a weird form of immortality to men through their placement in society and their identification with their father's lineage. Anyway, our boy St. Abin hears about the old couple and their baby and pays them a visit. He performs a blessing upon the baby and miraculously changes her from female to male. This is important because it's much less about Abin's own abilities and much more about a foundational Christian belief. Whether or not one believes in saints, one believes in the possibility of miracles in just about any Christian sect. The thing is, according to Christian doctrine and as many interpretations, miracles are only possible if two things happen. One, the miracle is powered by God, and two, the miracle is part of God's plan. Which means one could potentially use this story, as it has been used, as a point in arguing for the existence of trans people as part of God's plan. Now, with St. Abin, just so you know, his patronage seems unclear. The only thing that we know is that, like many pre-Christian gods of Ireland, he's especially linked to rivers and wells. You put that together however you like. Speaking of pre-Christian gods, next we have Saint Fotun. It's F-O-U-T-I-N. I tried to literally like look up a sound clip of how to say it, and it was like Fotun. So I'm going to say Fotun, but it's kind of hard. Um, so the Christianized sanctified incarnation of Priapus, the Roman phallic god, was Saint Fudin. In his home in Asia Minor, Priapus was a major warlike god, a rustic tutor to the infant Ares, who he taught first how to dance and second how to wage war. Priorities. However, as his cult spread and varied, so did the reception he'd be met with. His imagery and veneration was not taken very seriously by urban dwellers. More on that in a second. However, to country dwellers, he played two major roles. First, he was a major force in apotropaic magic, warding off the evil eye with his giant phallus. He was the patron god of sailors, fishermen, and would bestow good luck upon them. 
Second, and much more broadly, Priapus was a minor rustic fertility god who joined the ranks of Pan and the satyrs as a spirit of fertility and growth and a, and a protector of livestock, fruit, gardens, and in his case, genitalia. Priapus is best known for his iconic depictions as a hirsute man with a giant erect phallus, which he usually holds up using a set of scales. His name is actually the root for priapism, which is the medical term that's used in Viagra ads for when an erection alarmingly will not go away on its own. So how the hell did he become a French saint? Well, shockingly, Priapus stayed around for quite a while, well after the fall of Rome and the rise of Christianity. From the Mediterranean to the more northern parts of Western Europe, he was regularly invoked in gardens and homes as a symbol of health and fertility, as well as an apotropaic guardian. At a major church in the southeast of France, there was a large sculpted phallus, which was referred to as a relic of St. Foden. The faithful would pour wine over the sculpture's head, the head of the deck, a sacred vessel beneath would catch the wine, and the fluid that built up was called holy vinegar. It was widely believed to be an effective treatment in order to remedy cases of sterility and impotence. Around the same time, records show a man in northern, in northern England erecting a statue of Priapus amidst a devastating outbreak of cattle disease in order to avert it. So you see, his influence was far-reaching. He was believed to have an influence in restoring fertility to barren women and vigor and virility to impotent men. At Varai in Provence, waxen images of the members of both sexes were offered to St. Foden and suspended from the ceiling of his chapel. One commenter from the time stated that a common practice in some churches was to offer these figures and cover the ceiling with them so that when the wind blew about, it produced quite a show. St. Foden, whose name is actually derived from the archaic French word for fuck, was worshipped in France, often in the form of phallic pillars, until at least the end of the 16th century. He was allegedly a major icon of veneration for the gender-variant, homoerotically inclined, King Henri III of France. Good times. Um, next in a little snippet we have, I don't know if you know, St. Augustine. City of God, St. Augustine, one of the most famous converts to Christianity. Augustine revealed in his confessions that he had loved and may have even been intimate with another man. The relationship, in fact, was so strong, according to Augustine, that he considered suicide after the unnamed man's death. Yeah, we've all been there. Uh, then we have St. Bernard of Clairvaux, an abbot in medieval France. He maintained a lengthy personal relationship with the Archbishop Malachi, and according to gay liberation theologian Richard Cleaver, uh, the uh, Malachi, who was an Irishman who also became a saint, died in Bernard's arms. Bernard wore the fallen religious leader's uh, garments for all of his remaining years, and then upon his own death, Bernard was buried alongside Malachi on church grounds. You know. Now, one of my favorites is Saint, uh, San Juan de la Cruz, or Saint John of the Cross, who is a 16th century Spanish saint and is known most uh, uh, recognizably for coining the phrase the dark night of the soul, and he was an accomplished poet. He was prone to using homoerotic imagery in his works, uh, the best-known example being his poem On a Dark Night, in which he lays enraptured in the arms of Jesus Christ. Here are the last three stanzas. 
Upon my flowery breast, kept holy for himself alone, there he stayed sleeping, and I caressed him, and the fanning of the cedars made a breeze. The breeze blew from the turret as I parted his locks. With his gentle hand, he caressed my neck and caused all my senses to be suspended. I remained lost in oblivion. My face I reclined on the beloved. All ceased, and I abandoned myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. <laughs> okay, it's getting steamy now. So then we have some pear saints. Uh, and I don't mean like a saint of the fruit pear uh, or pear-shaped saints, although there's an argument for both. Uh, we have saints Avertanus and Romeo, who are a real tragic love story. Uh, you see, around the year 1370, a monk named Avertanus and his faithful companion Romeo were on a pilgrimage from France to Rome, during which they would stop to pray at any and every church that they came across. At some point, the pair fell dangerously ill with the Black Plague. They would go on to die within a week of one another, but so devout was their love for one another that they were not only buried in the same coffin, the locals buried them on church grounds in the same coffin, holding each other. In more recent years, they also joined the ranks of saints believed to be most helpful against the AIDS epidemic. Next, I want to talk to you about a movement called Saint Simonism, or San Simonism. San Simonism was a French utopian movement which occurred in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was largely based on the ideas of Claude and Henri de Rouvroy Comte de Saint Simon, who was ahead of his time in many ways. In 1814, he predicted the formation of the European Union. However, in his telling, it would be England who would lead its formation, so I guess he didn't hear about Brexit. He was also quite influential in the development of socialism, essentially positing that religion's new role in an industrialized West was the codification and maintenance of brotherly love as the central tenet of political and economic systems. San Simon was also deeply influential when it came to spiritual matters. In fact, his works greatly influenced the development of spiritualism and occultism from about the 1850s on. He would often refer to and revere God as androgynous or as a mixed-gender mother-father. He would even extrapolate this to the point of deducing the androgen as a representation and an embodiment of social harmony and the emancipation of women, even advocating for children to be raised without gender. San Simon's primary concern was the true equality and shared dignity of all peoples, and he made many inroads to the developments which helped realize socialism as a worthwhile cause. Jumping back in time a little more, we're going to talk about Cardinal, one of my absolute favorites, Cardinal Alessandro Albani, who was a bad bitch. So Cardinal Albani was born in 1692 and spent most of his early life preparing for a major career in the military. However, by the time he was coming of age to make the big decisions, his eyesight had already begun to weaken. He would end up being totally blind by old age, but this early development is what derailed his military aspirations and led to his becoming a man of the cloth. It also wasn't a difficult decision considering his uncle was Pope Clement XI and his brother was also a cardinal. He used his position and his wealth to become one of the most vital and influential antiquarians of his day. He was basically the aficionado of the Roman sculpture and was a very powerful force in the arts, acting as a patron and as a collector of great works. 
Albani served as the library of the Holy Roman Church from 1761 to his death in 1779, during which he made major contributions to the collected works and their organization and accessibility. His worldly manner made him a major force in another area, diplomacy. He was able to play a key role in many negotiation scenarios between warring nations and attempts at conquest. Cardinal Albani's greatest achievement had to be via Albani. Uh, construction began in 1751 and was finally completed in 1763, and this palace was built by Carlo Marchioni, a profoundly gifted sculptor and called by many of his peers a virtuoso draftsman. Marchioni was a lifelong friend to Albani, and both were prominent fixtures in the artistic and intellectually elite circles of Roman society at the time. Via Albani didn't just house and showcase the constantly evolving collection that the Cardinal had dedicated his life to. It was also home to a gorgeous park where two temples sat, one of which was an Ionic temple to Diana. Albani's collection was so extensive that it led to his employing the very first professional art historian that we know of, Johann Joachim Winkelmann. The Via was also home to a secret circle of passionate male friends and lovers, including Marchioni, Winkelmann, and others. These men were an intellectual and artistic elite in the great tradition of Roman antiquity, and they celebrated at these gatherings by performing acts and rituals of devotion to Pan and Priapus, as well as Hadrian and his lover Antinus. Hadrian, in many ways rings true in the story of Albani. Albani had something quite Hadrian-esque about him. Hadrian was a Roman emperor from 117 to 138 AD, famous for Hadrian's Wall. I often think we would have ruled similarly if I ever went in on the whole emperor business. He's counted among the five good emperors, a small group of rulers whose reigns were characterized by Machiavelli as being, quote, under the guidance of wisdom and virtue. These were benevolent monarchs, and their moderate policies drew a stark contrast with the often tyrannical and oppressive authoritarians who populated the ranks of emperors throughout Rome's history. Basically, he was not about the expansionist greed which had marked his most recent predecessors, preferring instead to shore up stable, defensible borders, and even more so, attempting to unify the empire's quite disparate peoples. One of the ways he went about this was leaving Rome often, doing what he could to visit the entire empire. Everywhere he went, he would personally design and implement civil and religious investments and infrastructure. His devotion to the unity of Rome led to his rebuilding the Pantheon and to building the magnificent Temple of Venus and Roma. He was a big fan of anything Greek, and he was keen on making Athens the cultural and religious capital of the empire, investing in many stunning temples and grand buildings there. It wasn't just the Greek art that he loved either. He had such a passionate, devoted relationship with a Greek named Antinous that it inspired works by great poets of the time. After Antinous' untimely, tragic death, Hadrian had him immortalized and venerated as a god. Statues of him in various local styles of dress were erected throughout the empire, and he was syncretized with local gods all over the place. In Athens, there were festivals held in his honor, and oracles were delivered in his name. He was consistently devoted to Greece as the spiritual hearth of Rome, and his devotion paid off. By his third and final visit to Greece, Hadrian himself had become the object of religious fervor. The people had deified him and dedicated monuments to his name. 
As for the Grand Temple to Venus in Roma, the temple was the largest in Rome and was built in a Hellenic style, more Greek than Roman. The temple's dedication and statuary associated the worship of the traditional Roman goddess Venus, divine ancestress and protector of the Roman people, with the worship of the goddess Roma, herself a Greek invention previously worshipped only in the provinces, to emphasize a universal nature to being a citizen in the empire. Overall, he was a generous, benevolent ruler who only sought to bring together the far-flung empire into a collective whole, and he saw religious experiences as the way to do this. Interestingly, he was moderate even on this. For example, he refused to persecute the early Christians. He would not, um, he would not have them sought out. No one was allowed to hunt them down. They would only be punished for specific, explicit offenses, like refusing to swear an oath in public. Other than a single major uprising he was forced to quell, his reign was characterized by peace. And now what we're going to talk about is interesting. I I just find her really fascinating, um, and I didn't write a transition, so let me vamp for a second. Um, we have Madre Juana de la Cruz. So you may have already caught that we talked about San Juan de la Cruz. Well, this is Mother John of the Cross, essentially. Um... Her, she's a 16th century Spanish abbess uh, who insisted throughout her lifetime that God had changed her gender in the womb from male to female. And her sermons would similarly depict a gender-bending version of Christ and God, something that was so controversial in her time that it, the church uh, cut short her beatification, which was like kind of par for the course. It actually stopped that in its tracks. They couldn't deal with it. She has since become celebrated and revered by the trans community, and in 2015, Pope Francis restored her venerable status. Last but not least, we have one of my favorite figures in uh, subversive Catholic iconology. Uh, honestly, according to, depending on who you ask, the figure in subversive Catholic iconology, we have Pope Joan. Pope Joan was, according to legend, a woman who reigned as Pope for a few years during the Middle Ages. Seems simple enough. Her story first appeared in Chronicles in the 13th century and subsequently spread throughout Europe. The story was widely believed for centuries, but most modern scholars regard it as fictional. Most versions of the story describe her as a talented woman who disguised herself as a man, sometimes at the behest of a lover, if the lover is included in the story. In the most common accounts, due to her abilities, she rose quickly through the church hierarchy and was eventually elected pope. Her sex was only revealed when she unfortunately gave birth during a procession and died shortly thereafter, either through murder or of natural causes. The accounts state that later church processions avoided this spot and that the Vatican removed the female pope from its official lists and went on to even craft a ritual to ensure that future popes were male. In the 16th century, Sienna Cathedral featured a bust of Joan, among other pontiffs, but this was removed after extensive protests in 1600. Here are some of the clearest accountings on Pope Joan by accomplished historians on the matter. Quote, John Anglicus, born at Mainz, was pope for two years, seven months, and four days, and died in Rome, after which there was a vacancy in the papacy of one month. It is claimed that this John was a woman who, as a girl, had been led to Athens dressed in the clothes of a man by a certain lover of hers. 
There, she became proficient in a diversity of branches of knowledge until she had no equal, and afterward in Rome, she taught the liberal arts and had great masters among her students and audience. A high opinion of her life and learning arose in the city, and she was chosen for pope. While pope, however, she became pregnant by her companion. Through ignorance of the exact time when the birth was expected, she was delivered of a child while in the procession from St. Peter's Basilica to the Lateran in a lane once named Via Sacra, the Sacred Way. But now known as the Shunned Street between the Colosseum and St. Clement's Church. After her death, it is said she was buried in that same place. The Lord Pope always turns aside from this street, and it is believed by many that this is done because of the abhorrence of the event. Uh, she is not placed on the list of the Holy Pontiffs, both because of her female sex and on account of the foulness of the matter. End quote. And that is from... Sorry, I lost my place. Martin of Opava in his Chronicon Pontificum et Imperatorum. Next. Quote, Query, concerning a certain pope, or rather female pope, who is not set down in the list of popes or bishops of Rome, because she was a woman who disguised herself as a man and became, by her character and talents, a curial secretary, then a cardinal, and finally pope. One day, while mounting a horse, she gave birth to a child. Immediately, by Roman justice, she was bound by the feet to a horse's tail and dragged and stoned by the people for half, half a league, and where she died, there was buried. she was buried, and at the place is written, in Petre Potter Patrum Papise Prodito Partum. O Peter, father of fathers, betray the childbearing of the woman Pope. At the same time, the four day fast, called the Fast of the Female Pope, was first established. End quote. This comes from Jean de Mali uh, from the Chronica Universalis Metensis. Quote, in Brescia, it rained blood for three days and three nights. In France, there appeared marvelous locusts, which had six wings and very powerful teeth. They flew miraculously through the air and all drowned in the British Sea. The golden bodies were rejected by the waves of the sea and corrupted the air so that a great many people died. End quote. This comes from Petrarch and his Chronica de la Vite de Pontifici et Imperadori Romani. A late 14th century edition of the Mirabilia Urbis Romae, which was a guidebook for pilgrims to Rome, told readers that the female pope's remains were buried at St. Peter's. It was around this time that a long series of busts of past, pope, past popes was made for the Duomo of Siena, which included one of the female pope, named here as Johannes VIII Foamina de Anglia. And included and was included in the spot between Leo IV and Benedict III. At his trial in 1415, Jan Hus argued that the church does not necessarily need a pope because during the pontificate of Pope Agnes, as he called her, it got on quite well. Hus's opponents at the trial insisted that his argument proved no such thing about the independence of the church, but they did not dispute that there had in fact been a female pope. The legend of Pope Joan was uh, effectively demolished by David Blondell, a mid-17th century Protestant historian who suggested that Pope Joan's tale may have originated in a satire against Pope John the Eleventh, who died in his early 20s. Blondell, through detailed analysis of the claims and suggested timings, argued that no such events could actually have happened. Uh, and this has been reinforced by modern scholars. 
And it, it should be noted, by the way, that like the whole story of the female pope really took on a whole new life when it probably would have faded, uh, because at the time of the Reformation, a lot of various like various Protestant writers took up the Pope Joan legend as like the emblem in their anti-Catholic writings, basically saying like, look at how you know foolish and overwrought these Catholics are. They wouldn't even know that you know they uh, had an imposter female pope until she had to give birth in the middle of the street. So that is what kept the story going on quite a lot as well, was anti-Catholic fervor. Um, however, her story and image uh, were actually also immortalized in the Tarocini decks of the late Renaissance period, which would lead to the modern tarot decks we recognize today. Before the Rider Waite deck of modern fame, where she is figured as the high priestess, she was featured in the same position as La Papesse. The fact that La Papesse was meant to depict Pope Joan is essentially a long-settled matter. However, at certain points, there have also been several popularly espoused theories as for who else she might be. One of my favorite contenders is Sister Guglielma, an Italian noblewoman of the 13th century. She practiced and preached an alternative feminized version of Christianity in which she predicted the end of time and her own resurrection as the Holy Spirit incarnate. Totally chill. She is now the unofficial patron saint of Brunate. Apparently a widow, she adopted the life of a Pinzacetta, which are religious women living independently in their own home, much like the Beguins of Northern Europe. In Milan, she soon attracted disciples from the elite classes of the city, as well as among the Umiliati, the uh, lay urban religious movement that operated on the fringes of heresy pretty consistently. When she died, sometime between 1279 and 1282, her body was buried in the Cistercian Monastery at Chiaravalle, the burial site soon becoming a shrine and a cult springing up around her. The Guglielmites, her followers, were led by a sister of the Umiliati movement, Maifreda de Piovano. Uh, who was elected their pope and performed mass over Guglielmo's grave. Their creed declared that Guglielmo's resurrection would herald a new church led by women, that at the year 1300, the male papacy would forever end and the female papacy would begin. For obvious reasons, this attracted just a little bit of attention from the Inquisition. In 1300, 30 Guglielmites who were, uh, were charged with heresy. Guglielma herself was posthumously condemned on the basis of a confession almost certainly extracted by torture from Andrea Sarameta, uh, one of Guglielma's most fervent disciples during her lifetime. So what do they do? Guglielma's bones were disinterred and burned, and three of her devotees, including Maifreda, were sent to the stake. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing these many stories as much as I enjoyed telling them. Remember, the saints are always there for you. The saints are a collection of people who bravely lived out their own lives in service to their beliefs and in their deaths promised to aid anybody who would invoke them. And there is not a saint on record that we know of who has ever made that type of declaration, but added on some caveat akin to, if you're not a Christian, don't dare ask me. Add to the mix that the majority of the most iconic and highly revered saints have clear ties to pre-Christian gods, heroes, and cultural figures, then it becomes clear that in many ways venerating the saints can be seen as the veneration of the ancestors. These spirits are not only the forerunners to the modern saints, but they may also function as the sole lasting vestiges of those who indeed came before the current paradigm. 
I want to thank you again for tuning in. I mean, doing this series has really just been so edifying for me. And I have to apologize for another gap. Um, I've had to put more classes online and quarantine has been kind of crazy. So I do want to just say thank you again. Um, I really hope that you found some myths here which helped you navigate your own sense of self and of the world around us, you know, just a little bit easier. So with that being said, I am going to wish you all a wonderful week. I hope that you are doing great things for yourself. I hope you're taking care of yourself and I will see you all in the next episode. In the meantime, be gay, do crime, and don't forget the gods are always watching. Bye.